Hello and welcome to Mad Get Radio, episode number four. Absolutely not episode number five. Um, <laughs> this is the second time we've had to record this, and uh, I ballsed up the beginning. So, <laughs> welcome to episode number four. I am joined, as always, by the Batman to my Robin, Paul. What's going on, guys? Everyone's good. And uh, we're joined tonight with uh, by a very special guest. Uh, we're joined by Ed, aka Scottish Knight who is the um, head of the background team for the Ninth Age. Say hi, Ed. Hello. I'm here with my compulsory evil-looking cat to stroke at the same time. Absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> Stroking the pussy. Is that what you were going to say? <laughs> is that really what this podcast is going to do? <laughs> uh, so we've got um, a very special episode in line for you all today, um, profanity included where we're going to be talking about all things fluff and background to do with the Ninth Age. And Ed has very kindly agreed to come on and uh, let us abuse him and question him uh, for an hour about all things uh, relating to the background team and the finished product, which is the fluff which is increasingly being released and put into the army books. Um, So before we get into it, um, just a general outline for the show, we're going to be uh, talking with Ed about the all things background and then just at the end we're going to have a quick discussion about Midlands which is a big uh, team tournament which is uh, happening this weekend the 18th and 19th of November and which um, Ed and I are attending and we're both looking forward to that. Um, so before we go any further, um, Ed do you want to just give us an introduction to yourself and tell us about how you got into the hobby um, maybe about how you found yourself sitting on the Shadow Council as uh, the background representative? Um, and all the evil things that you've done to deserve that. <laughs> yeah. Uh certainly feels more like a punishment than a reward <laughs> most of the time. Yeah, so uh, it's been about 20 years since I started gaming on and off. Always kind of more of a collector in the past than a, a real uh, regular gamer. But uh, the Ninth Age has actually given me more of a chance to play regular games than I used to. So uh, I'm enjoying that. I started off picking up... Uh, Bretonian models in toy shops um, with whatever money I could spare, scrounge or steal. And that was a handful before I ended up uh, collecting a Wood Elf army. Then got into Orcs and Goblins, which then sat in a cupboard for a few years before rediscovering the hobby just in time for it to uh, get killed off. Uh, so <laughs> it's just... That's the core theme in our group, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an experience that everyone was kind of thinking, oh, maybe I'll get into this eighth edition thing, and then yeah. yeah. So yeah, the new the new prospect, the new game, didn't really enthuse me at all, and I sort of stumbled across Ninth Age, not really having much of an idea of what it was at the time. Uh, wasn't involved in tournament scene, didn't know much about Suicomp or any of the people who were founding it. So yeah, it's been a, a fairly steep learning curve since that point. And uh, I initially started offering the uh, legal team my services because uh, that's what I do in my day job. But uh, at the time, they only had one person and they only needed one person. So in the end, I ended up offering the head of background at the time to give him a hand when he was looking for some additional writers. Got taken on as a writer, uh, worked in the team for maybe a year or so, and then uh, Pip left. Uh, he was taking up a job in America and uh, he asked me to take over for him. And then later on came the dubious honour of uh, joining the executive board, I guess just uh, 
largely due to the kind of level of oversight of the whole project that senior positions affords. Cool. So do you want to tell us a little bit about um, how the background team's organized and how many people are actually working on that just now? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, essentially it's it's a group of writers, a kind of, you know, fairly loose collective. We don't have formal divisions within the team um, apart from when we occasionally take on consultants who kind of help with a specific subject matter. Um, but generally speaking, we have a pool of writers, each of which is able to contribute to whatever the, the current project is. So currently speaking, we have the Warriors book. We are naming uh, all the new elements of the books for 2.0 for the beta releases. We are also developing background for the armies that we haven't finished yet. So that's uh, the current projects are Ogres and Saurian Ancients. And yeah, essentially... Generally speaking, I try and have one lead writer uh, on every on each faction or each project uh, who takes that on, uh, and all the other writers offer their support and they pitch in with whatever needs to be done to complete that project. So at the moment, I'm leading the Warriors book uh, with everyone else contributing uh, stories for each of the individual articles as needed. That's cool. So it sounds like it's very collaborative then. You don't kind of just dispatch people to go do a book and then they come back when it's finished. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think part of the part of my concern has always been to want to get a breadth of voices, both within the book and also when reviewing your the work that's been done. Uh, I think something that can often um, make things look a bit flat is if you've got one person's take on what looks good, what works, uh, and that that doesn't get challenged, that doesn't get pushed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so. It- how do people go about, if anyone is interested in joining the background team, how would folk go about doing that? Do they just message you directly or, or are yeah, you pretty, for people? Or are you kinda... um, it, it kind of varies from month to month, really, um, as people's availability comes and goes or people's activity increases or decreases. Uh, everyone has real life stuff. Uh, the bastards. Yeah, I know. I don't know what they're doing, this kind of <laughs> real world nonsense um but yeah so i mean uh from month to month it might be that we're yeah, we're very well staffed it might be that a few people have kind of stepped back for a time um so i always try and have my eye on the potential next um writer who might be able to join uh there's also a bit of lead in time because it takes a bit of time for people to get up to speed with all the material that's written already uh, which is, I would say, anyone who's joined the team recently would say it's quite surprisingly substantial. Cool. So, yeah, I mean, certainly write me if you're interested. Give me, uh, I'll, I'll, I would ask this at the time, but give me a sample of the work that you've done before or example of how you can you can write and do you able to take it from there? Nice. So, because obviously, I mean, Ninth Age is a vast number of armies and there's even nations that are kind of hinted at in the, the rule book, which obviously has a big bit of fluff that aren't covered in the army books just now. So there's there's a huge world of background that needs written. Um, you mentioned that you, you're doing like projects, so you, you're very selective in the ones that, you're, that are active just now. Obviously, Warriors of the Dark Gods and um, Demon Legions are the ones that are uh, pressing just now. But you mentioned uh, Ogres and Saurian Ancients, so they kind of the next in line. Um, no, actually. So uh, the way it works is that we try and write an internal wiki because we don't just necessarily want to have the details written 
for the faction that's being discussed at the moment, but we want to have uh, at least a groundwork laid for all of the factions. Uh, and that way, if we want to cross-reference them in stories, if we want to have them as antagonists or uh, allies, then we have that basic information that we can turn to and we can use that. Um, so my view of world building is sort of uh, an iceberg approach to it, that there's a lot that has to sit underneath the surface uh, in order to make sure that what is actually visible is good quality, is consistent, and doesn't just look like fan fiction that's been kind of thrown out and, and left to sit on its own, really. So that's that's really the work that we're doing at the moment, is to make the world that sits behind individual stories so that when the stories come out, uh, we can say, you know, this is the reason for this happening, this is the explanation, this is the justification behind each bit. Yeah, that's cool. I think that, that kind of comes through in particular the um, the little bits of fluff in the, the main rule book where you've got like um, there's one where it's the Imperial Trader writing about how he's come into contact with the, the Saurian Ancients and things like that. That's something that as a player I, I found quite you know very cool that you've got this interlay and obviously you are building this world but at the same time it's because you've got little bits like that it, it humanizes it that there is these characters living in this world and it's that kind of thing that you were talking about layers i think that's kind of coming off very well so far yeah and and obviously i know that sometimes that causes problems with people who get frustrated about not having all the information or not being able to pull back the curtain and see everything and, and not have to to build up that picture over time and it, it is a choice in the end uh, and it's a choice that we had to make one way or the other so uh, for example the world building of someone like george rr R. martin doesn't rely on all the details being known it relies on uh details being kind of discovered as they become relevant to the story so there's always more to the world than you think initially and that's what allows for people to have their own theories and their own takes on it you know the if you look for example at the how much of a spoiler of Game of Thrones should I give out here? I suppose that. Uh... <laughs> okay, right. This is what we'll do. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the uh, Rhaegar Lyanna romance, for example, in uh, Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire, uh, that is a story that has exercised people for years now. Yeah. Almost, you know, fifteen years plus. I think that wouldn't be possible if you knew from minute one of reading the book oh well that's fine we knew they got married so there's no mystery there yeah what um, they got married <laughs> i really did hope you not... you're not being serious <laughs> yeah, no, did you not listen to the spoiler alert we just did <laughs> what the fuck no well okay no guys <laughs> um but yeah so it, that's essentially where we're looking is that uh, and it, the other reason to me for not having that top-down kind of tell everything about the world in an encyclopedic form uh, is that we want the ability to change the world. So if, for example, uh, people want to explore something different with the rules, there needs to be that opportunity for you to say, this isn't set in stone without rewriting the whole world and having flexibility in the in how the background is conveyed gives you that opportunity to say, just because you understand something as people in the world understand it doesn't mean that it's true in the kind of real sense yeah that's quite a hard thing to do though it must be anyway i'd imagine so 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it has its challenges, don't get me wrong. Um, but equally, it's how the real world is. You know, you can't, you can't go out into the world and say, this is what is true for a majority of, of subjects. And the only places where you can say that is because there's just this weight of evidence that's built up over years. So, you know, if you look at the villains or the heroes of history, a lot of that will depend on which source you read. I'm, I'm telling this to a historian. I don't know why I'm bothering. But you know, <laughs> no, go on. I'm enjoying it. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's so much in terms of understanding that comes from who is writing it, why are they writing it, how are they writing it, what uh, agenda, what motivation do they have for doing so. God, I hope my first years are listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> and And to me, that's what makes it true to life, as yeah. opposed to just looking like, uh, the kind of thing that you might find tagged onto uh, a board game in a box. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. I mean, you talked about kind of the limitations, or not, sorry, limitations is probably the wrong word, the limits of what you want to do just now because you have to be that flexible. I mean, a big discussion point in the forum has been in the past named characters because yep. obviously in, in the GW world, which is a world to which most of uh, the player base came from in some way or another, Named characters in the grand narrative was something that was important to a lot of people. Um, but we're now at this kind of crossroads where, you know, the game system, as in the core mechanics, are well established. There's a solid base around the globe now of people playing this game. And that, I mean, Ninth Age isn't going anywhere. So there's now the ability to really flesh out the background and things like that. What, yeah. Where do you see the limits of that being? Because there's something quite liberating not having stuff like named characters. And like to give people uh, a spoiler as to my view, I don't think there should be named characters because I think that not having named characters allows actually a lot more freedom. You can make your own. You can say that you know, your marshal is General Bumbutt or whatever and that he's a cool dude. Um, but yeah. I know that a lot of people disagree with that, so I'd, I'd be interested to see what uh, you think of that. I think they might disagree more heavily if, it, if our characters are called Bumba. <laughs> I don't know. I'd buy them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, something that I've always been concerned with, and, and I agree that some people don't share this view, uh, is allowing people to make their own narratives uh, and leaving room for that. So, for example, something that people may be used to is the idea that they're told uh, how many of a thing there is, how many dukes of Equitain there should be, or... Uh, how many magic swords there should be, how many steam tanks are in the world, that kind of thing. And to me, those kind of numerical limitations, uh, I don't find that they add something, I find they take it away, because then you're saying, well, how can I have, how does my little army have this magic sword that oh, there are only 10 of in the world? How does my army have three of these steam tanks if, you know, there are only seven out there? I'd love so that, to see the Empire Army that's running three steam tanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it could be a grand army, you know. It could be, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, these kind of um, these kind of set limitations, I find, cause more discrepancies than they help in terms of flavor. So I don't want to get into numbering how many provinces, how many electoral regions there are of Sonstal, or how many Coatl there are, or you know anything like that. Yeah. Um, that said, that doesn't mean that you have to avoid specifics uh, from the setting at all. Uh, and so when it comes to special characters, 
legendary characters, as we've been calling them. Uh, I think the chances are at some point that will happen. I don't think that it will not happen. And I've been sort of considering recently uh, how best to do that. Mm. Uh, and personally, what I think is uh, similar to if you were to take something like campaigns, for example, that there is a way to achieve it, um, which is to uh, look at um, supplements to the core, the core rules, basically. Uh, maybe um, like a campaign book or something like the campaign is sooner or something like that. Yeah, right. exactly, exactly. So rather than putting them into the army book and saying, you know, this is part of the army, you're saying if you want to play legendary characters, uh, so Legends of the Ninth Age, for example, and bear in mind that none of this is kind of official Ninth Age policy. This is just me kind of thinking out loud. But um, Official yeah. might get exclusive, Edward. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, purely on my thoughts. But, you know, we, we've we've looked at various different ways that this could be done. And I think something that would be interesting is uh, to have just kind of self-contained uh, character supplement or, so, you know, the opportunity for you to look at different characters from different factions and say, you know, what you'd like to play. I really like that idea. What do you think, Paul? In terms of name characters, the thing I like about that as an idea is that they generally introduce something new into the army. So yeah. in, a lot of, in a lot of cases, you can that might have an impact on how the army can be formed. But one of the things I like about a lot of the books is that there seems to be those kind of mechanisms inbuilt uh, already. So most armies can be built in different ways depending on how you want to run them. So you, you're not really reliant on a character. It's more a kind of intrinsic thing to the game. So from that point of view, I suppose you're not as reliant upon them in the same way as you might be in other games. I think there is something pretty cool, though, about, you know, if you bring a character that people are aware of that don't play that army and you put it on the table and people are like, oh, shit, you brought that guy. I know what that guy does. <laughs> that can be quite fun, but... It's Martian um, Bumba. Oh, no. Yeah, fucking hell. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, it's not really like a, a deal breaker. I mean, if, if the decision is made not to kind of incorporate that within the rule books, then I'm okay with that. I don't really have any strong opinions either way, as long as there's enough flexibility within the army for people to build the characters that they want to play. Um, I think that's the main thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think legendary characters as a as a concept would be a bit wasted if you didn't use it as an opportunity to explore something new or different about the army. So you're, you know, the idea of legendary characters, are you kind of thinking this as a purely kind of like fluffy narrative game option or like more incorporated into the army books the way that um, like um, like Kings of War does or Games Workshop did where you have well, characters. Yeah, it's, it's interesting actually because I had this discussion with someone recently about uh, special characters when we used to play 8th edition and before. And my general view was that if... Uh, if you brought a special character without agreeing it in advance with your opponent, you're being a dick um, because most of, those, yeah, most of those special characters were not particularly balanced, were not particularly fair. Some of them had ridiculous abilities. The that, yeah. <laughs> even, even, even one of the Orc and Goblin ones, Skarsnik, that could delay your opponent's army and turn them into reinforcements and stuff. You know, that kind of stuff that, you just randomly out of the blue pull on your opponent is uh, not particularly sportsmanlike, um, and this is why they were 
banned from tournaments as far as I understand it. So they were never they were never really seen as, as a true part of a competitive army list for a fair game. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you don't necessarily care about a fair game. Sometimes you just want to have fun, you just want to tell a story, you just want to play that kind of game. Yeah. Um, but I think if you start from the perspective of you choose to play with those rather than um, having to balance them to the same extent as all the rest of the army, then potentially that also opens opportunities for you to do more weird and wonderful things rather than have to uh, stay within the bounds of what's kind of reasonably feasible in the army's strengths and weaknesses, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, I like this idea of doing like the, the supplements because I know that that works really well in a lot of historical war games where you like you can do like the campaigns of Hannibal where you have Hannibal and depending on what stage of the campaign you're at, Hannibal is either you know a good general or an excellent general. So if, when he's in Italy, he's got you know he's an excellent general. Uh, his army's quite elite, but it's very small now, and he doesn't have as much health. It's you know that kind of thing. And I think yeah. something like that has a lot of uh, legroom in our setting that you could do some really cool uh, ideas uh, in conjunction with campaigns or even just separately. So yeah, I think that's a really cool concept. So I think that's a good segue into a conversation about just like the general approaches to the fluff um, and some of the the reasons behind the core concepts uh, which the Ninth Age was built on. So stuff like the re-inclusion of some armies. So Infernal Dwarves were reincarnated in in Ninth Age when uh, in, in fantasy. And I don't, I don't think they're present in Kings of War, uh, like a chaos. They are. Oh, they are. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah, they have uh, abyssal dwarves. I think oh, they call. Of course them. they do. Yeah, yeah. So, what was the? Do you know what the decision was behind like the core foundations uh, of the background stuff? I mean, to be honest, I would say that the origination comes from which armies were supported. I believe were supported in ETC. I'm not completely sure of that one. Okay. Um, but I think there was an effort to support Chaos Dwarves uh, as were within the kind of overall comp- uh, the overall hobby, um, and so from that, obviously, this came the opportunity to say, well, it doesn't matter whether they're supported by uh, Games Workshop or by any other company at this moment in time. We we're free to say um, these are the armies that want to be included that we want to have included. So that was the kind of origination of, uh, as far as I understand it, this is before my time because the 16 factions were set quite early on in the process. But yeah, I think from there uh, we've been able to say there's no reason that we can't support each of those factions in the setting and then have the opportunity for a few uh, potential future factions as well. In terms of like the, the actual fluff, um because there's obviously this big issue of legacy, and whether we like it or not, a big um, both background and gameplay influence was uh, Games Workshop's fantasy battles, and um, people still in the forums who kind of trace whether that's just like um, in their armies, like they've still got their their Sigmar banners or whatever. Like, there's a lot of people that still are very connected to that. So as the the background team. How do you guys deal with that? Because I imagine it's quite a difficult balancing act of finding something new and original, but also having enough of that kind of past flavour to keep 
the more diehard fans of uh, previous game systems uh, on board, I imagine. Yeah, it's uh, there's certainly no simple um, direction that you can take that's going to keep everyone happy. So, you know, from, from the outset, it's a difficult thing to accept, but you have to accept that not everyone is going to be happy with the choices that you make. But what we have endeavoured to do is to look at not necessarily the detail of why did someone like Empire, why did someone like Bretonnia, why did someone like Lizardman, but what were the themes that sat behind those? And, you know, when you start looking at the themes behind the armies as they were presented, so many of them have historical roots. They tie back to specific civilizations or specific um, places in the world. Mm. So rather than looking to Games Workshop for inspiration, which we clearly can't do, we're looking at instead how can we take inspiration from the real world, the real world sources that inspired Games Workshop in the first place and that people bought into and enjoyed. So Mesoamerican culture when it comes to uh, Saurian Ancients, the Holy Roman Empire when it comes to Empire, yeah, uh, or, or obviously elements of Germany and the foundation of Germany, etc. Mm. English and French chivalric uh, civilization when it comes to Equitain. And, you know, essentially you could just go on and on from there. There is almost nothing that doesn't have a historical uh, place within the real world. Uh, and then we can take that and use that as a starting point for how to bring it into the Ninth Age as a, an original but still familiar feeling uh, part of the background. That's interesting. I really, yeah, I really like that. Because, I mean, so much of Games Workshop's fluff, and all, they really all kind of fantasy fluff is deeply rooted in either the historical or the kind of um, quasi-historical mythological background of, you know, the real world. Um, I'm interested about the world map because I know that this was not contentious but somewhat divided opinion because it's interesting uh, listening to you talk about um, really firmly set in the background and real world kind of-ness if I can say that and the, the map is very similar to our world map was that yeah. kind of was that purposely done to tie into those kind of themes? Yeah, entirely. I mean, you know, you you could you could make a completely original world map, uh, and you could mix things around, and you could move this, you know, you could move what would be South America to somewhere else, and you could make it all uh, look random, essentially, or just different. But um, you know, the real value of that is to be different when. People are going to see the similarities anyway. So something that I suppose I've bought into since joining the background team and uh, continued since taking it over was to say, let's not shy away from historical comparisons. Let's not shy away from the real world connections to the background that we're writing. Let's embrace it uh, and use it to our benefit. So people are not going to doubt where South American influence can be felt on the world map because they know South America someone who's picking it up for the first time can look at the map and say, oh, okay, this looks, you know, familiar. There's clearly differences, but I can understand what Vetia might be like. I can understand uh, a bit of what Ogeo might be like. Uh, and it gives them a way to start 
where if you look at some fantasy maps, and to be honest, most fantasy maps follow this route anyway, but occasionally you'll follow, you'll look at a fantasy map and it will just have no bearing to anything that you're used to. Uh, quite often they have no geographic um, sense to them even. So you just have nowhere to, to sort of start picking into what, uh, how that map works and how everything sits within it. So that was part of the aim was to give people a starting point where they don't feel adrift. That's interesting. Because when I, I mean, when I first saw the map, I was a bit disappointed with it because uh, my internal thinking was that you've got this massive new fantasy world uh, which you could do anything with. Why would you want something that's so like the real world? But actually, listening to you speak there, talking about rooting it, rooting the factions in geographical areas which resonate with those armies or those um, races, actually makes a lot of sense. I quite like that. Yeah, I mean, there, there were there were all sorts of um, theories and proposals at the time. And you've got someone who would say, let's make a 16-spoked setting with each race being on a different spoke and then one big middle bit where they all fight. That's a bit battle royale, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and you know, someone might want to want to go for that. But, yeah, as I said, you know, we wanted to start from a place of realism and build on that solid foundation. Okay, one fear that Paul had, and I'm going to throw him under the bus here, <laughs> is that I'm getting pre- I'm getting ready for Midlands about throwing people under buses and stuff. So uh, Paul had a fear that actually no, Paul, you you say your fear. I've thrown you under the bus already, so you have to. <laughs> so with regards to the map, I definitely say that I was someone that was hoping for something quite different. Just from my point of view, when I look at the world map just now. Not only am I looking at the world map, I'm looking at something that's fairly comparable to GW's fantasy world. So for me, I was a little disappointed from that from that point of view. Like listening to your justification, I can totally see the value in doing it that way, and I'm fully aware that there'll be people that will prefer this. So again, you're not going to please everyone, which is totally fair enough. But for me, being in a fantasy setting. It being completely different would be something that I would be looking for because I want to find out what's over there, what region of the map, who lives there, what are the interactions that are going on and kind of delving into the history and things like that that shapes that world. That's what I would have preferred. The The thing that Andy's referring to is because, in part, I'm a Warriors player and there's been this uh, shift towards changing the marks, which I'm totally okay with. Like, that makes total sense, and it's something I'm actually really looking forward to. But because the new marks are going to be based upon what appears to be the Seven Deadly Sins, and also the world map is quite similar to ours, there seems to be a very strong connection to our world. I think what Andy's referring to, if I'm right, is, (laughs) is the fear that what this is going to turn into is going to be, oh, the ninth age actually happened. It's it's a fantasy world that no longer exists kind of thing, which I would personally hate. Okay. So, right, okay, so you're talking about um, like a Terry Brooks almost... Uh, yeah, Star Wars-y kind of thing in the galaxy far, far away. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, no. I don't... I mean, that's not something that I... Uh, would look at and it's not something that I would buy into that 
you know, most of these races are going to disappear and it's just going to set up uh, human history. I mean, I don't even know how that would work, practically speaking, um, because most of the technology is more advanced than human history up until about, what, seven, sixteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds, depending on which faction you're looking at, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, no, there's no intention of doing anything clever in terms of interactions with the real world or mirror dimensions or, you know, this isn't where Mighty Max goes through a portal and ends up in the 19th <laughs> age setting. Might be aging myself there. Um, I believe that so, yeah, I mean, the Empire won like a tournament, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, when they're the only faction left. Yeah, exactly. That counts. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I get that having it close to the real world means that as well as people having their kind of knowledge and understanding that comes from living in the real world, it also comes with the risk that people assign fears and prejudices and pre predeterminations based on that. All I can say is that we, you know, over time, our aim is to uh, work on establishing the character of the factions in such a way that their areas will feel unique to them. And while they'll take inspiration from the real life areas that they're drawing inspiration from, they're not going to be, they're not just going to be like for like, they're not just going to be a copy of real world history. Can you see you guys as the background team as time goes on? making a more conscious effort to step away from the kind of fluff that a lot of the game is kind of based on just by virtue of the fact that this is the game that has came about after Warhammer basically made the change. Like with regards to just like the names of places and like I say, like the, the common geography and things like that, like do you think maybe in two years or, you know, three or four years down the line where, additional fluff will be released every so often. Do you feel like at that point it's going to be easier to be talking about things that are more radically different? It depends what you mean by radically different, whether you mean different from uh, Games Workshop, uh, in which case the answer is yes, and it already is, I believe, in many ways, and it's growing more so. Uh, if you mean different from the real world, then... I'm not sure is the answer to that because it will depend on the factions that we're writing about. Um, and ultimately it will depend on where parts of the background go. So if people want to, you know, if we're looking at introducing Iron Crowns as the next faction, for example, the core of that is a European mercenary force. That's the kind of idea behind it. So again, that's going to be, that's not going to be radically different in many ways but there are also other areas of the map that have a lot more potential that haven't been explored yet and i think it really depends on where the game and the community wants to go in the future so i don't think i can give an easy answer to that one unfortunately can i ask i take it there's not any russian people in the background team <laughs> not in the background team currently no that's interesting the wasteland. Are you looking <laughs> at the world map right now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, there, there are analogs to Russian culture that don't rely on the wasteland, though. Okay. Ed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that. Um, I mean, obviously, with 
the Warriors of Dark and Gods being that's such an important faction, they need to be somewhere central on the continent. And I think there's not a lot of places you could have put them, really. Yeah, I mean, and part of it is the kind of Tolkien-esque uh, threat to the East, yeah. um, you know, sort of set up. Um, but also, I mean, something that we've been working on quite a lot is uh, diversi- diversification of the Warriors from just having one geographic center. So that's something that hopefully will come out in the book that yeah. they don't have to come from one specific place. I mean, we'll we'll probably I want to have a conversation about the the Warriors, Dark Gods, and Demon Legions in a bit. Um, so actually, you know what we'll do? I'll not say what I was going to say. Remind me to say what I was going to say later on. <laughs> um, so let's talk about kind of the core backgrounds then. Um, so when I was I had another read through the full rulebook, reading through the fluff and reading through a couple other bits like uh, that have been released through the scrolls and things like that. And uh, the core concepts as I wrote them down were the Pseudomyth, the Nine Ages, um, the Veil, and the world as it is. We, and we've already kind of discussed the world, so um, I wondered if you guys wanted to talk through the, the Pseudomyth, the Nine Ages, and the Veil, and kind of just have a discussion about the, the, the core foundations of what they are and the reasons behind them. So maybe start off with the cinema, if you want to give us a bit of background to that. Ed. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I would also add that these are these are important stories, but they're not the only stories. So sure, yeah. um, it, it's a fear that I've heard people say is that you know Suna is going to be the mascot or the um, you know the kind of main uh, narrative push of the Ninth Age. And I just want to make clear that although she is a major character she's not going to be the only character uh, and her importance will always be more to empire of sunstar players than it will be to the rest of the faction Damn the rest of the factions <laughs> um but yeah so i mean the the kind of initial um i mean to be honest this this predates me in many ways uh that some of the earliest decisions were around naming the ages and this character of Suna being in the background. Um, but I ended up actually finishing off the writing of the, the myth itself as it is in the, in the rule book. And, you know, the idea was to have this um, age of humanity. Again, this is, this is very, um, very much mirroring a kind of Tolkien progression of time, which we have to be careful doesn't end up with everyone leaving on a boat and disappearing in, we're only left with humans at the end Fuck of off, it. Frodo. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the the idea was to have this kind of rise of humanity, which brought about the ninth age, uh, and so we needed a, a character that figureheaded that, that kind of drove that that point forward. So that's where Suna came in, and it was also the opportunity to say, let's start from a strong position of let's not have every character in the setting be a man. Let's not have everything just revolve around male kind of achievement. Um, I think that's super important. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, the the, the hobby is always going to have a reputation of being uh, male-dominated or being um, kind of uh, one that appeals to, to guys more than anything else. But... Um, is the correct term. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you want to be crude. Um, That's all we do in this podcast. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, 
how much of that is true and how much of it is a sort of self-reinforcing um, fact of the more you make the game appeal to just men, the more men take it up and the more men talk about it with other men. And then you just don't get to the point where you even encourage other people to look at the game. So from that perspective, and just in terms of having the opportunity to have interesting female characters in the world, you know, it's not like history is devoid of those characters for us to draw inspiration from. So, you know, Suna obviously has quite a lot of inspiration from someone like Joan of Arc. Uh, And so, you know, that's, that's, I think, one was one major opportunity to explore with that. And then, you know, it was the, the, the kind of rise of a hero and exploring what I think is a relatively original idea was to take Vermin Swarm and to put them as being the primary antagonist of Son style. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole the storyline about Avras, actually, before I say that, um, I really like the cinema. I thought it was really good. But the, it all kind of centres on Avras, um, and Avras itself is like a relic of a previous human empire. Yeah. So, what was the decision behind that? Because obviously the, the iconography that the rulebook puts in is very Roman-esque. So it's this idea of um, like dark age. Uh, dark age isn't actually the correct term anymore, but that kind of like dark age civilizations kind of look back on the Roman Empire as that that period of pinnacle, which we've kind of fallen too far away from. And that's the same kind of sense I got. Is that was that purposeful? To yeah. That? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, we wanted to explore that. Um, this isn't a, a linear progression from a dark past to progressive bright future yeah. um and neither is it this um kind of constant falling away so if you look at uh, lord of the rings for example the majority of that you're looking at uh civilizations who are dying and fading and everything is uh, a shadow of what it once was so we wanted to get away from both of those and to say you know there's room for fluctuation in history, you've got room room for advanced civilizations who fall apart or collapse, and less advanced civilizations who grow more advanced. So we wanted that kind of historical element to look back and say, you know, there have been great civilizations before. Are they more great? You know, maybe they're just a bit uh, idealized now uh, with the passage of time. Who can who can say for sure? Mm-hmm. Um, but Avras gave that gave us that opportunity to say, look, here's a Constantinople-esque city that um, people want to recapture, want to retake, want to hold as being the peak, the you know, the pinnacle of civilization, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's cool. What was why was the decision to stick with the empire as the core thrust? I mean, I know that because um, the way that you guys are approaching the fluff, it, it's not the same kind of line that GW took in theirs where it's the story was always really focused on Sigma in some way, shape or form. Um but why was their decision taken to at least in Suna's case follow Sonstal? Was it just to make it more relatable or accidental? Yeah, I mean starting starting from the perspective of a of a human character of a human civilization, uh it gives it that sort of simpler foundation it gives you that solid foundation to build on where you can say people know what to expect from humans. People know what to expect from human characters and narrators. So I think in part it was, 
it was a it was a good place to start from that point of view. It wasn't going to ruffle any feathers. It wasn't going to put anyone off when they're reading it with reading outlandish ideas. But it also just gave us an opportunity to uh, start fleshing out the world and exploring it from that perspective. But I mean, over time, we've we've certainly tried to avoid it just being a Sun style showcase, if you like. So the the Cinemyth, uh is all pre Sonstal, for example. It's all pre the Empire of Sonstal being founded. Yeah, it's all the tribes and stuff like that before the Empire's founded. Yeah. Uh, so you've got tribes that form Sonstal. You've got Equitane, which was a kingdom when Sonstal, before Sonstal was founded, which will be part of Equitane's uh, kind of historical storyline when that comes out. You had uh, tribes that formed other Vettian nations at the same time as well. So it was it was an opportunity to follow a character who would be important to the background uh, and who would have a place and it just I, I think it partly it just so happened that her natural place was um within uh empire of son style as as their kind of legendary character to look back on cool so what about the the nine ages obviously because that fits i think i mean i think i'm right in saying that the the main decision between uh, sorry for making the project, um, sorry, calling the project the Ninth Age was obviously because you had Eighth Edition Fantasy, and this was the next step, which was going to be kind of different. Why did you guys? I mean, obviously you had to stick with it because it's Brandon, but um, I mean, you guys made a very conscious effort with the world him to really flesh that out, and I, I think it's really successful. I really like the Ninth Ages. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, again, this was before my time. The project was called Ninth Age when I found it. So, um, for, yeah, from that perspective, no one had a real appetite to try and rename the whole project. But, um, yeah, from our perspective, we wanted to say you could have Ninth Age be this thing that uh, no one ever talks about. It could just be this um, this name that sits outside of the game and uh, only exists in the in the kind of meta view, but um, it would be better from our perspective if it was something that you could actually refer to in-world and say people know or people talk, call it the Ninth Age. So, yeah, from our point of view, we just wanted to explore what events would be significant enough globally that they would actually cause people, at least in Vetia, which can then sort of transfer across the world. Uh, to divide the, the timeline into ages and what would cause one age to go into another. So kind of like the the descriptions of Middle Ages and Dark Ages, and I know you probably don't like those, and those are probably outdated and not used. But oh, Sorry, that's before my period. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, people have these descriptions and they have these ways of describing time uh, by breaking it into into narratives and into stages. So we thought we can use that and bring it into uh, into the setting and have people actually think about um, how they delineate time. Because, you know, doing it by centuries and by pure dates and numbers can be a bit dry, so... Yeah, no, I agree. I like as well that every faction plays in it. I mean, some feature more than others in the Nine Ages, but... In a way that reflects their fluff, like the Sylvan Elves don't really, they pop up a couple of times in the, the, the world hymn, but that kind of, I mean, they're meant to be quite reclusive, defensive, not really meant to be on the forefront. 
Whereas, like, I love the fact that the first stage, you've got the, sorry, in Ancients, it's like the overlords, and the natural disaster hits and they, and rebellion, and then they kind of go back to the jungles, and then they're kind of rediscovered uh, when the other um, races venture into the world and kind of colonise new areas. So was there, I take it there was a, like a purposeful effort to try and include every faction in in the world, huh? Yeah, just, I mean, everyone, you know, you wanted a reason why a faction either was or wasn't heard from or did or didn't play a big part in it. So, yeah, wanting wanting to have a at least a small nod to each faction and kind of representing what part they'd played in the uh, in the overall development of the of the world and its history. Um, and yeah, as you say, some some groups would have been less interested in shaping the world, or would have want who would have avoided uh, some of the events that played a part in that. But uh, they were still there, and they still they still had a presence that yeah. we wanted to at least reference in some way. Yeah. And what I really like about the Night Ages is, and it's something we've already touched upon, is the the lack of finality or fatality. Like um, in in GW and in like a couple fantasy kind of settings, um, there's this kind of idea that the big baddies are going to win in the end, and it's all about the epic struggle that's kind of futile. Yeah. And I've always found that, particularly in a game setting, it's actually quite hard to get into because what's the point if you're all screwed? Um, and I really like how that wasn't, and it seems purposely it wasn't included in the Nine Ages. Yeah, again, that's part of the kind of cyclical history idea that there are rises and falls and one one nation can you know if you look at something like the british empire the fact that a tiny island can have this ridiculous huge empire and then can dwindle away if you if you had an inevitable rise or an inevitable fall you're never going to have that kind of narrative fitting into the world so um you need to have that prospect for change and that prospect for advancement and decay basically yeah no absolutely so what about like alliances? That was a big yeah. thing that kind of crept into the the GW fluff. What's your kind of take on it for ninth age? Yeah, so so something that partly I want to uh, I wanted to get away from the idea that there were factions that would never be seen together in any circumstance whatsoever. That kind of absolutist mentality, because partly I mean that's so rarely true to life that. You know, almost anyone will ally with someone in the right circumstances, uh, and the question is just how dire do those circumstances have to be before you would make that alliance? Mm. And so the question was more like, how do we support the idea that alliances can exist? And it's something that we need to explore more, um, but without necessarily saying these are the inevitable alliances. So there will be there will be probably more enmities than alliances, but we want to make those kind of example entities and example alliances rather than being the connections that exist between all the factions. Yeah. Uh, And again, that's part of a grand alliance. Like there's not going to be like a dark God's grand alliance, which sees. No. um, Yeah. Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. We want to get away from order and chaos or having those, uh, you know, binary divisions of the world into good guys and bad guys. And again, that's something that I've talked about at length of, not wanting to have good and evil just be these simple binary concepts. That leads us quite nicely onto the, the veil. And I, I don't know if you maybe want to give the people listening like the overview of what the veil is, because I think it's a really interesting concept. 
Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the veil, I guess, to, to know the veil, you have to know um, the mortal realm and the immortal realm, which are the kind of realm where you have matter, kind of reality, if you like, and that's solid and tangible. And then you have the immortal realm, the realm of magic, where everything is possibility and change and flux. That was to do with having an origin for how does magic come into the world? Where does it come from? What part does it play? Uh, and then you look at, um, well, why doesn't this, why doesn't it happen all the time? Why doesn't magic just flood the world? Uh, and so we had the idea of the veil and of there, there being these kind of uh, elemental forces rather than gods. And they're kind of tugging at the world in different ways. And you need to have a division between them. Uh, and that's what the veil is. And the veil as a, as a concept, uh, it's a metaphor for a barrier, but it's a barrier that can be strengthened or weakened. It's a barrier that can be very occasionally torn and it's permeable. So it allows a certain degree of movement. Yeah. Cause I like the idea that um, you've got the gods and there's obviously a, a huge pantheon of gods, some of which have no interest in the moral realm. And then you've got others like, uh, like Suna or the dark gods, which are more involved and that they kind of get their power from organized religion in the moral world moral realm sorry i like that because it gives them a reason to care whereas there's a lot of fantasy settings where you've got these big powerful beings that play this massive role in the grand narrative but you don't really understand why they're doing it yeah i mean you don't necessarily want to know what their motivations are in the micro sense you don't want to know why they're doing their actions because otherwise you make them a bit too mundane but i agree when i when we were kind of fixing the world uh, it made no sense to me to have gods who didn't need something from the mortal realm, but still cared for unknown reasons. Uh, you wanted to have at least some element of grounding of why do they give a shit, you know? Yeah, why no. do they actually turn up? Why do they help people out? Why do they... There's got to be some element of um, reciprocity there. Why does Suna abandon Andrew's magic dice rolls every time? <laughs> Uh, I think Andrew's prayers are not good enough. I think Suna's a fickle bitch, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I expect that to be our calling cry at Midlands. Fickle bitch! <laughs> As Andrew's escorted out of the area. <laughs> that's that's the path to the Warriors of the Dark Gods uh, chat there, man. Yeah, yeah, right. I've spoken far too much in this podcast. So I'm going to hand over to, uh, to Paul to talk about Warriors of the Dark Gods. Warriors, eh? Good <laughs> yeah, what, what's that about? So when's that bit coming out? As soon as it's ready. No, it's in, just as you're talking about how like the veil works in the immortal realm and how there's this idea of the fact that these beings, they kind of need something from the mortal realm. It's quite interesting because it, like, to me it just makes them sound like parasites in a way they can't really exist without this kind of feedback if you like in a way i think i think it would depend on their their own behavior i mean i think the option is there for them to be purely parasitic or the option is there for them to have more altruistic goals and everything in between basically so yeah i I think there's certainly a possibility for that for that view to be taken that um you know, maybe this god doesn't care about me at all. He just wants 
my, you know, he wants my belief, he wants my faith and trust in him. But even some of them, like a deity like Suna, for instance, where from the outset it would appear that they are more kind of, what's the word? Benevolent? Yeah, but again, they're they're still dependent upon worship, presumably. So they're not, I mean, they're not really in it to be good. They're in it to basically fulfill their own purpose at the end of the day. Well, I think I think that's really where we get into interpretation of someone's motives. So, you know, a paramedic gets paid for their job. It doesn't mean that they're not in it for doing good, you know, doing good for people. So, but but the the point is the paramedic will exist regardless of whether they do that as a job or not. Yeah, yeah. Like my question is about the god and how they yes. basically sustain themselves. Yeah, and and yeah. So I uh, so to to kind of put that in context, they not all immortal beings use or need belief. It's a source of power, but it's not the only source, and it's not necessary for them to live. It's not like they would wither and die. But they would be less without it. So what about like the uh, the gods themselves? Because um, I know that this has all been released. Um, that it's the kind of the sins idea. But I don't know if maybe you want to have a quick run through you two about what the new gods are going to look like and perhaps what how they uh, kind of manifest themselves in the moral realm. Well, that's an easy question. That's an easy one to answer because uh, they don't. <laughs> there we go. Basically. Moving on. <laughs> Um, so we, what we looked at was um, what makes a god a god, what defines a god, uh, and what makes it about faith rather than just seeing them. You know, if you could have a god could show up whenever they want, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't Suna just show up and say, hey guys, I'm Suna, you should worship me? I ask myself um, that question all the time. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, what, what makes it not become uh, a kind of... Um, you know, like an ad campaign, basically. You're having an, a war over who's got the best god. Why wouldn't your god show up? Uh, so we, we kind of took a, looked at that and, you know, looked at um, the, the kind of properties of the world that we'd designed and also at the nature of demons and other supernal creatures. And basically the idea was that a god of that power, the world just couldn't support uh, their physical presence their presence in the mortal realm because anything from the immortal realm needs a certain degree of magic to sustain it the more powerful it is the more it needs so for a god something of that power to exist there just isn't the level of magic to sustain them basically okay so what about like their supporters because obviously like demon legions are demons so how does that work uh so i mean it depends on the number of them and it depends on the setting um but generally speaking they can cross the veil in areas of high magic so that's where you've got somewhere like the wasteland okay uh or they can be drawn through they can be summoned through by through rituals they can be you can create areas of thi- where the veil has been thinned in order to bring them through um so yeah we've we've looked at various different ways in which you can you can have them enter the world. And there'll be some examples of that uh, in the Warriors book, just to kind of show how that would operate. Yeah, because this, this relates to the thing I was going to say earlier that I really like. And it goes, it's, it's similar to the like the gene stealer idea in 40k, that there's this invisible threat that's const- constantly present 
that your next door neighbor could secretly be, you know, a worshiper of the dark gods, and that uh, no matter where you are, if you're in, you know, Volksgrad or you're in, you know, a Saurian temple, that there's there's because of the way that the, the sins kind of work now, like every race is susceptible to dark influence, and that they can strike anywhere. And I really like that. It makes the the warriors and the dark gods themselves much more versatile. I think. And from a modeling point of view as well, I mean, like, there's no reason why you can't have a warrior's army that's made up of, like, Saurian-esque guys, which I think is really cool. Yeah, Yeah, and I hope that people will, at some point, will take to modeling them. Um, I would love to see a a halfling warrior's army, for example. (laughs) That's a thing. Are halflings in main cage? (laughs) Um, So we we have discussed uh, about them having a formal place at the moment. They're kind of, we've left ourselves a room where they can go in, but we haven't done anything with them as yet. Um, Particularly because I guess the question is, what do you do with them? Um, Fuck all, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because Sun-style players, I'm sure, would love them to be part of their you know, part of their army and, and be able to add a few options. Yeah, that'd be cool. But then Sunstall doesn't exactly need any more options. What? <laughs> N- numerically speaking, Sunstall's not exactly short on units. I don't know. We can always... They're, they're short, though. So it's really... Yeah, they don't take up a lot of space. <laughs> two for one. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but I yeah, know. so, I mean, the, the question is, you know, if we put them in the setting... I would want that to at least have an opportunity that they could be on the table sometime. Um, and it might be that they could be there as a, as a conversion or as yeah. a themed army, yeah. but you know, I'd like to, uh, it's something that'd be nice to explore whether there is a place for them. I guess iron crowns, you could include them in a, as a mercenary capacity. Yeah. In which case, which, which, you know, is that I think is most likely. And in which case it might be that they are something that we looked at was, you know, whether they could have a nomadic lifestyle, for example. <laughs> Halflings on camels. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so we've, we've totally gone off topic there about where is the <laughs> How did we end up with a uh, halfling? Um, so could you remind us, Ed, about the the new style Warriors of the Dark Gods? So what, what are they and what were the kind of design ideas behind them uh yeah so i mean we 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 took the the kind of principles that people wanted about warriors and um we looked at what would set them apart from normal humans you know using humans as a baseline but obviously there's nothing to prevent it from being elves or ogres or whoever so the kind of starting point from that point of view was what sets them apart do we want them to they could just be barbarians for example you could take the view that they're just a barbarian culture but that doesn't really set them apart as such that just makes them one more human civilization so what we kind of took from uh what people liked about them and what we could take from the themes was that they were empowered in some way and then you look at the kind of sources of what could um, be used to empower them and the idea that people liked having uh dark gods i mean that name was already in place uh the warriors warriors of the dark gods so we looked at what the dark gods could be and at that point it was sort of i think the the kind of decision was made to look at look at them as individuals primarily so 
civilization is something that's covered in uh, you know, a myriad of different ways across all the different factions. But individualism taken to extremes was something that we could explore with warriors, something that we could say, why would they care about a whole civilization? Why would they care about collective culture and working for a common good when it seems like their themes are leading them towards what's in it for me? Where can I, where can I become the best that I can? This kind of elitist mm. mindset. So we took that and we ran with the different uh, interpretations of what the dark gods could be. And we ended up looking at how they could take this opportunity to indulge themselves and indulge whatever restriction, you know, whatever society would normally restrict them from. So they could take that, um, what would be called a weakness in other places, and they could turn it to their strength and they could indulge it in whatever way they choose. So it was a kind of attempt to make them into a, a sort of hyper individualistic society with a focus on personal strength, personal gain, personal power. Cool. I think linking to that, and I think to round off our uh, discussion about the fluff and everything, I know that it's really important to yourself and a number of others in the community at large is to have fluff which is reflected on the table. And that's something that's easier said than done. Um, but particularly with the Warriors book that's coming out and the Demon Legions book, um, how have you gone about trying to get that, you know, a reality? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's been... Uh, <laughs> if anyone wonders why the Warriors book has taken a while to come out, then uh, you could pretty much lay it at the door of that whole discussion that had to take place and that whole so process. Your fault. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, the Warriors book was the first uh, 2.0 book. It was the first uh, chance to make something that was truly be as original as it wanted to be, basically. So we, you know, we set the background for the Seven Dark Gods and uh, what warrior culture was about. That was all set in place quite a while ago. Uh, and then we had design teams who were looking at different ways to turn that into rule sets. We had conceptual guys who were exploring uh, different options. Um, we looked at all the different models and all the different units that people had that they wanted to still be able to field. So it was a, it was a huge task uh, and it was a big learning curve, I would say for all of us. But yeah, I mean, starting from the principle of the dark of the seven dark gods and the kind of core elements of warrior culture. Um, I think we, we did a fairly, decent job of being able to reflect those on the table and then from there we've been looking at all the different parts and all the knock-on effects and things so uh looking at feldrax for example new name for dragon centaurs and mm -hmm. how they tie in what their culture is so yeah i mean it's it's essentially just been one huge process of uh starting from core principles working up through the whole faction and also trying to keep in mind that people want to play a game that still feels more or less the same. Not the same, but, you know, still feels... Yeah. It still has those same elements and that same kind of feel to it. Are there any units... I know the Fildrak um, Ancestor was something that got announced last week or the week before. But are there any other units in the Warriors book that's coming out that are like completely new and which have been kind of really solidly founded in that fluff? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there, there, there are a few units that are, there are a couple of like merged things. There are a couple of changed 
uh, units. There are a couple of units where models that will be in people's collections will find a, a, a different but still viable use. I don't have all the spoiled units in front of me, so I can't. I don't want to go into exactly what is what, etc. Um, the Feld, the, Feld, the Feldrek ancestor, I know I'm on good ground with because I know that one's been released. But for the, I mean, for the most part, people will still rep, will still recognize the kind of core of the army. They'll still recognize um, the warriors and and the chosen that will have a kind of major place. And I think the chosen will be even more. Uh, kind of central to the army, um, but beyond that, there will be there will be things that people will see that have changed, and it should pretty well reflect uh, the background of the army. Cool, Paul. Do you have any queries? Like I said before, like the the new marks and stuff is something I'm really looking forward to. The big thing I'm worried about really is the book comes out, and I'm like, oh, I really want to feel that that way we're gonna to have to go out and buy new models so <laughs> i'm never gonna get around is that to like really start... a worry <laughs> well i'm never gonna get around to like starting another army because i'm gonna to have to like <laughs> rebuild the one i've got <laughs> come come back when you can field three separate armies from the models you have for one faction because i'm pretty sure i could do that with orcs and goblins <laughs> yeah yeah, I wouldn't surprise me. I could definitely field an individual goblin and an individual orc army with no difficulty at all. I've got to admit, that's something I'm looking forward to for uh, Iron Crowns. Like, I, I, I like the idea of being able to buy like Imperial Ogres and field them as like Imperial Ogres in a, <laughs> like, a mercenary army. I might even have to buy some halflings now after that discussion. I, you know, I was actually thinking the other day about I'd love to make a halfling uh, Empire of Sun style themed army. And have like a have like a steam tank with a big cooking pot on it. Oh, there's yeah, there's loads of companies that do. Oh yeah, I know, I know. Uh, that'd be cool. Yeah. So, any final words on uh, what to expect from the background in the future, background team? Oh, I'll tell you something that you can expect, uh, hopefully fairly soon, which is a, a teaser video for the Warriors book, and it's possible it's possibly the best thing I've seen produced by. The project. That's exciting. It I thought beautiful. you were going to say ever. Well, it's <laughs> like a sheltered life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this Game of Thrones thing that people talk about is nothing compared to this. Garbage. It it may be one of my favorite like trailer teaser type things ever. I would say. It's just tits. Um, it's just thirty seconds of tits everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's Love. Game of Thrones. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I... actually, see, as you as you talk about the video, that was something I was thinking about looking at the rulebook. As the background team, obviously, you guys work a lot with the artists and things. Yeah. So in the book, it kind of struck me the other day when I was looking at it, and it didn't at the time. It does more so now that a lot of the new artwork is very similar to a lot of the kind of models that are being produced by a lot of the alternative companies, which have kind of found a really good base in the ninth age. Were there discussions with these companies and yourselves and the artists as to what people wanted? Or is this something that the companies have just kind of piggybacked on and thought, okay, you guys have came up with that artwork. We're going to make a model that looks like that. Um, so there, there's been a bit of, um, not like copying as such, but there's been a bit of sharing of ideas for companies that have been producing new models where they've had an interesting design and they've, suggested something and the art team's taken it up or 
potentially the other way around. I'm not involved enough with the companies to say for sure. Um, but also some of the companies have actually donated artwork as well. Um, so some of the artwork that you'll see, particularly in the main rulebook, is artwork that has been donated by supporting companies. Um, so, I mean, you know, we, we, we love the idea that there will be this kind of reciprocal arrangement with companies who want to support, want to get involved. But we're never, you know, we're not, we're not getting into the point of tying to an individual company or uh, giving prominence to one specific company. So it's really just a kind of a sharing of ideas and a sharing of inspirations, really. Yeah, no, that's cool. It was, it was um, some of the Rotten Factory stuff. It just struck me. I think it was because they were involved in sponsoring the tournament um, and just seeing a lot of their models kind of in the flesh. There's a few different kind of demon-esque or warrior type artwork pieces in the book that I was looking at and I was just like, wow, that's really similar to actually some of the Rotten Factory stuff. That's actually really cool. It wasn't something I'd picked up on before. Yeah, I think one of our artists actually, um, he has a he has a very similar style to the Rotten Factory stuff. So that I mean I don't even know if that's directly uh related or if it's just the fact that that's just his style and it just happens to be similar. So um but yeah I mean there there are certainly uh there are certainly companies coming up with interesting and different ideas that um hopefully will inspire things in the future as well. Obviously you're head of the background team and you guys have to work very closely with the guys that have to basically get these ideas onto the, the table and get them to work in a way that's going to be manageable and that's not going to break the game. How easy is that? Like, Presumably that's there must be a lot of back and forth between you guys in terms of you guys coming up with a rule and then the, the, the real guy saying that's just not possible on the table. Well, we never come up with rules, basically. As a background team, we all, all we do is set the inspiration for the background. And obviously sometimes that will kind of have a knock-on effect where the design team will, will say, in order to implement the background, we need to have a rule that's like X or like Y. And sometimes we have adjusted the background to incorporate things where, you know, if, if a rule is proving difficult, then it's there for the design team or the rules team to say, this doesn't really work, is there any way we can change that? And then we explore how to how to accommodate it in a way that can support the rules um to me that's that's an important thing is that you don't want to have one part of the project dictating how things are going to be to the rest of the project because that doesn't result in a in a quality end product because the background team aren't designers and the designers aren't writers and you know no one can do all things at all at the same time cool one thing that we've maybe not talked about a lot about over this uh podcast but we should at least have a shout out is the art team and the layout team because some of the, the artwork and particularly the main rule book and uh, the Sylvan Elf and Undying Dynasty full rule, uh, full uh, army books that are up on the form it's just awesome like, incredible yeah uh, I mean my personal favourite is the um, whoever did the Sawnstall and Beast Herds uh, image which is on the back like the very back pages of the full rule book where it's the uh, the halberdiers Hold against the charge of the looks like wild horns. It's just like absolutely incredible. Yeah, that was uh, Thorsten, the head of head of the art team. The head, right? Okay. Yeah, I mean it's a beautiful piece. I I don't know what I would say my favorite is of the stuff that's been released because my head is full of the um, cover for the Warriors book, which is absolutely gorgeous. And again, that'll be that'll be coming out pretty soon. There'll be a sneak of that. 
Is there a particular um, god represented? Uh, yes, but I don't. I don't want to say which one just now because okay. I'll let it. I'll let it. Uh, let it come out and let people see if. Well, one, I'm not even sure if it's explicit or whether you'd have to interpret it from the picture. Okay. So I'd rather not give that away. But um, it's it, tense, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really difficult, really hard to interpret that one. Mm, it might be slow, <laughs> but it is. It is a. It is an absolutely amazing bit of artwork. So yeah. I'm. I'm excited to see the response to the video and to what people think. Do you have a favorite god? Of the dark gods, or of the whole, all the gods. You more of a bigger uh, man, or just dark gods? Um. I like sloth actually. I really, <laughs> I really like the. So one, I mean, we've we we explored a bit of what sloth would mean, uh, and how sloth could actually be a benefit on the battlefield as opposed to just being something that sounds a bit silly. And you know, sort of sort of explored this idea of uh, endurance. You know, they're they're slothful not because they're lazy, but because they're going to be the last thing standing on the battlefield when everything else is dead and gone. So yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of element of that, uh, you know, come hell or high water, I'll still be here. Devil may care attitude that I really like about sloth. So I'm gonna have to buy new models, am I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hoping that some of our supporting companies will make tailored uh, warriors models for the dark gods. That'd be pretty cool. Just an army of actual sloths would be really. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to find a, a company that actually makes sloth miniatures. <laughs> Just thinking. Just think of like uh, Zootopia, you know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, the the Warriors team were looking for um, sneak peeks of some of the design notes for the art team for the Warriors design. So those will probably be coming out in the next day or two as a sneak peek. So yeah, there'll be a bit more uh, guidance for people who are looking for you know different visual representations of the Dark Gods. Nice. And if any of the rules team uh, are listening. Sloths are actually very good swimmers. So I say <laughs> water strider for all slothiness on the table. Paul's a geologist. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> when you say they're good swimmers, I'm not convinced that they're beating Michael Phelps across a pool. Dude, they can like tank it across like a, a raging river. Trust me. <laughs> okay. So there you go, Paul. That's your influence on name page. All slothiness nice. is going to have water strider in it. <laughs> Uh, I think with the amount of armor they wear, they'd be more like submarines. <laughs> that still kind of counts, I guess. Yeah, this is a big straw going to the surface. <laughs> right, I think we should probably wrap up the uh, the background conversation there, just as time's going on. But um, cool. just before we finish up, Ed and I are part of the Scottish Wildlands team that are attending Midlands this weekend. Uh, we're going down with our friends Andrew Cowan and Michael Doherty to go and represent and shame our home nation <laughs> to an international audience. In our brand new t-shirts. In our brand new t-shirts, so you can't miss us. <laughs> so, looking ahead, Ed, I mean, all the all the lists are out and they have been for a while and uh, I know that the Thundercocks, uh, or sorry, um, Jack from the Thundercocks, uh, got some guys on and they went through all the lists. Um, what's your your overall thoughts going into it? I wish that I had taken an item that kills zombie dragons. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> I know. I think they're called cannons. 
No, I oh, think they called... don't work, man. They don't... <laughs> they're they're called um, anything with flaming attacks. I know. There's so much regen going about. Even the demons, like the big nasty demons, they've all taken that one. It's the uh, four up regen. Yeah, I mean, I I do actually think that um, of our team, Michael with the pyromancy to give the trebuchets flaming attacks might be the the single best uh, prospect of killing one of those zombie dragons. Yeah. To give um, people a bit of background, um, I, I'm taking Empire unsurprisingly. I've gone for a kind of mixed arms uh, Empire list. Uh, Ed, you're taking your infamous Kingdom of Ectane. I don't know if they are infamous, but even if they are infamous, this is infamous. This isn't the normal build that I would take. So yeah, I'm trying to like this is to cause fear in our opponents. <laughs> just destroyed the illusion now. They've read our lists. They're not afraid. <laughs> so you've taken a an all night list. Uh, fully mounted. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's yeah. a couple of yeoman units in there, but uh, mostly it's five cavalry units and three big characters to give a punch. So cool. And uh, Andy's taking his Dwarven Holds, and it's a very hard-to-break-down Dwarven Hold army that he's played for a long time. Uh, and Michael is taking your Orcs and Goblins. Yes, because you two decided that you only wanted Empire, and uh, you have yet to diversify properly. So <laughs> I have over 120 zombies, which are built, and <laughs> just need to be picked. <laughs> Painting zombies is easy. You just uh, throw up in a bucket and dip them in. There you go. I keep uh, like distracting myself. I keep doing like building other wee bits just to delay the inevitable of having to start painting on it. But... <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah. Uh, so yeah. I'm taking orcs and goblins because I mean the original plan was I was going to take uh, Paul's warriors of dark gods, but Michael is thinking about orcs and goblins in the future, so uh, it's a good opportunity for him to try out the army. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, th I think there are some, there are a lot of lists that you would expect to see at international competitions. So it'll be interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I've been to big competitions before, and I've come very badly out of them. So uh, frankly, if we are outside the bottom quarter, I'll be exceptionally happy, given that this is our first kind of major team event as a club. It's quite a lot of teams going, right? Yeah. yeah. 18 teams? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's it's a big turnout, um, you know, for a for UK-only tournament. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's going to be really good. So I think what we'll, what we'll do is after Midlands, we'll get uh, yourself, if you're free, and both Andy and Michael, if we can, onto the podcast, and we'll maybe have a Midlands uh, kind of debrief where we can talk about that. Um, but just as I kind of wrap up for this one, predictions what place are we going to come out of 18 I, i'm gonna say 14 14 okay yeah last <laughs> <laughs> thanks paul <laughs> Wait, are, are, do, you, do you genuinely think last or are you going for the price is right strategy where you just go lower <laughs> than everyone else i'm just trying to help you guys go in with zero okay. expectations so that if you actually come like 10th 11th 12th you'll actually think wow we did amazing <laughs> but you never know. Like you know, sometimes, like um, I think you guys list stand as much chance as anyone else. Yeah, I've I so I mean to be fair, my so my experience of going to competitions like this uh, was going particularly was going to the uh, uh, Danish warm up event last year um, with 
a group of you know decent but not setting the world on light players uh with quite a lot of fluffy lists and i've never been ripped apart so comprehensively as i was in at least three of those games so uh it's it's a humbling experience when you play someone who's that much better than you i will say that my butthole is ready <laughs> uh but i'm looking forward to it i'm looking forward to it yeah, a lot it'll be a good laugh i think yeah. just make sure michael doesn't bring in those fucking dice that you had last weekend because they were horrendous yeah yeah i think if his first game goes like that did when it comes to magic rolls and stuff we might have to burn them i think you need backup <laughs> dice yeah i think we'll have a communal dice bin uh, and any dice that is repeatedly rolling ones, saving leadership tests, we should just chuck it in the bin, and then save them all for the trip home, and maybe chuck them out or bury them at the border or something. Yeah, they're not coming back not, home. <laughs> yeah, not let them back across with us. Ah, uh, yeah, it'll be good fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I just kind of, I mean, we're recording tonight, which is Wednesday, and my only plan for tomorrow is just get tomorrow done so I can go <laughs> get down to Midland on yeah. Friday. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So just to wrap up, um, I think just a massive thank you to you, Ed, for coming on and for talking to us for this past hour and a half. Um, and I'm sure we'll get you back on to talk more about the fluff, uh, particularly when we get maybe the Warriors book out. Maybe that's a good opportunity for you to come back on and yeah. have a So chat. when is that, Ed, just so we can pencil you in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's 2020. Um, 2020. Yeah, just... Just mark me down for then. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I'm sure it won't be too long. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. It'll be about the same time as the, the final rulebook comes out. That, uh, depends whether you mean final or the beta rulebook, but yeah. Oh, so when's the beta rulebook coming out? I don't know. I'm not saying. <laughs> not, my, not my area. Uh-huh. See, we've been pretty good on this episode. This is, this is what the last hour and a half could have been. We were very well behaved. <laughs> yeah, I was I was waiting for my moment to storm off the podcast and you didn't give it to me. Rage quit. <laughs> no, you're my lift. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> right, uh, so thank you, Ed, for coming on. Um, Paul, any final words before we sign off? Uh, nope. We will see you guys next time. Looking forward to hearing how uh, the Midlands tournament goes. Make sure you guys take plenty pictures and update the twitter um because i'm totally jealous i'm not getting to go <laughs> i'll be messaging you constantly don't worry um so just to wrap up um i mean if anyone's listening to this and they're going to midlands please come say hi because that'd be really cool um so it's myself ed uh, michael and andy they're all going we'll all be wearing our brand new very sexy scottish wildlings t-shirts um it will be hard to miss us so come say hi um, if you want to drop us an email, you can do so at um, scottishwildlings at gmail.com. You can also get us on Facebook at Scottish Wildlings. I think Ed's newly just changed the name. So Scottish Wildlings, Ed, is that right? Uh, yeah, Scottish Wildlings. Yeah, cool. Um, and you can also get us on Twitter, either through Scottish Wildlings or at Scottish Ninth Age, uh, both of which will pop us up. So, uh, just as a final word, thanks for listening. Uh, Next episode, we'll be talking about Midlands, and we will catch you then. See you later.